0: Welcome back to the show. Very excited about my guest today, Shubham Shaw, better known as Shubs or Not Naffy. What does Not naffy mean?
1: Uh, it was actually a joke. So I have a good friend of mine, also in the industry. His name's Nafi, and uh, he used to do a lot of bug bounties. He's in the top ten on HackerOne. And um, when I started HackerOne, I wanted to get to a point where we could be uh, right next to each other on the leaderboard with Nafi and Not Naffy. So that's why I, I chose that name. But
0: Okay, want, so it's one of yeah. those inside Bug Bounty joke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have never met, but we cross paths. We not really cross paths. When I joined Bishop Fox, you had just left. So let me set the stage. When I joined Bishop Fox, you just left to go become a full, full-time Bug Bounty hunter, to become a full-time hacker who's just going to make your living, doing bug bounties and I've heard only like amazing things about you as a hacker and as a researcher and as a big picture thinker about these things can you take me back to what year was that 17 2017
1: yeah sure um, back then I was um, I, I had released my uh, tool asset note as an open source project sometime 2015 2016 and um, you know initially I didn't think much of it but a lot of the people in the bug bounty community, Found that it was actually something that was highly effective when it came to automating reconnaissance, and um, that convinced me to work on it a lot more in my free time. And you know, at that point, um, you know, I just introduced the idea of continuous vulnerability scanning into asset mode. That was something that I had built. Um, it was an original idea; no one else was really doing it on a continuous basis for um, assets coming in via recon. And when I had built that, it had led to some pretty significant results. So I think one of the results that it led to that really convinced me to, I guess, uh, step away from my job at Bishop Fox was um, we were running it across all of Slack, um, Slack's attack surface. And mm-hmm. um, one day we saw, you know, 10 to 20 subdomains pop up on Slack's attack surface. Um on slack-files.com, slack-core.com, and all of these look like QA and staging subdomains. Since I had built vulnerability scanning into AssetNote on a continuous basis, what we had actually detected was there was a Git repository that was uh, exposed on those assets for a short period of time. And that Git repository contained all of Slack's source code, including all of their secrets hard-coded within that source code. So, this, so is, this was
0: part of a private security assessment, part of a pen test you're running your internal... No,
1: this is a part of a bug bounty. Um, oh, wait, so wait, wait. Was,
0: so, so you're doing bug bounty even while you're at Bishop Fox? Yeah, that's of, right. Okay, got it.
1: Yeah, yeah. In my free time, I used to do a lot of bug bounty work. And when we found this um, this particular vulnerability and we reported it to Slack, um, Slack has given us permission, by the way, to to speak about this since since that's happened. But they paid out the max payout, which was 10 grand at the time. And um, it took them almost a year or two years to get everything fixed up because of how many secrets were leaked. But that was the, I guess, uh, light bulb moment for me, that there is a market out there uh, for this sort of automation and this sort of tooling. And that really convinced me that, you know, maybe there is a a good chance of, you know, uh, building something, an enterprise product that does Everything I was doing on the Bug Bounty automation side, but for enterprises.
0: But wait a second, you're you're skipping over a lot. And I want to get into automated scanning and all of that. That $10,000 payout was your biggest at the time ever?
1: No, definitely not. Um, It was a big payout, but probably not my biggest.
0: When you decided to go full-time Bug Bounty, it was a financial decision? It was like a freedom decision? It was an intellectual curiosity decision? What was that like?
1: Uh, It would have been a freedom and an intellectual curiosity decision. Um but it also I mean,
0: was like for, for you, for someone of your talent and caliber in that world who got in pretty early and was able to figure out this automating it. And I wanna get into it. I wanna get into what really goes into bug bounty bug bounties and being one of those, um one of those guys living in that world. For someone of your caliber, it it, it ended up being economically
1: Yeah, it was definitely economically viable. I would say that um even when I was at Bishop Fox in my free time and I was doing bug bounties. I was earning, you know, very decent um, side income from that, enough to really survive on. And um, when I decided to quit um, my job at Bishop Fox, that was a key motivator to being able to, you know, start my start my own business at Asset Node and do bug bounties full time at the same time. Um, I knew that I was be I was going to be able to make enough money to survive.
0: Uh, and you knew this because you had figured out that you had to authentic you had to automate a lot of the process. And what it's, it's an interesting trend to observe from somebody like me on the outside looking in. It seems it seems that back in 2016 2017 the market or the industry for guys like you looking for jobs was these small boutique pen test shops or you know a consultancy and you would do web app pen testing in there. And then there was this explosion of the bug bounty market. Not only do, did all the private vendors have bounties, but then HackerOne and BugCrowd came along and presented platforms and gamified it and really, really like made it a place where you guys could go make a living there full-time. Uh, is that still practical today without Without building out your own set of automation tools, is, is it still practical for a youngster today to take that jump?
1: Yeah, I think it's still practical, but I think you have to be particularly creative and uh, you still have to do a lot of automation. You know, I've seen I've seen hackers who are really creative when they, they go really deep into applications and I've seen hackers who automate and cast a really wide net. It, it kind of depends on your methodology um, and how you want to play the game, I guess, but I do think it's possible. It is a little bit more difficult than it was back then. though.
0: Back in 2016, you wrote a blog post about 120 bugs in 120 days. So you set this goal of finding a bug a day for the entire year. And then you documented this entire process. I think you stopped at 120 days. Is that accurate? Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah.
0: And how much money did you make over the course of that 120 days?
1: Um, if I you can you remember? recall, it was it was just under a hundred thousand dollars.
0: But over the course of that, you talked a lot about uh, the mental stress and the anguish and the burnout. And can we talk a little bit about about some of the human side of living in that world? When you discussed it, it was the first time I had seen someone talking about the exhaustion and the burnout of living in that world. And what does it feel like when? Okay, wait, let me back up because I got a lot of things to get to with you. When you when you get a target, someone puts a target in front of you, whether it's a bug bounty or whether it's through uh, a paid assessment, traditional pen test assessment or whatever it is, right? Do you automatically know in your head what path you'll take? And um, can you talk me through this initial process of like planning uh, your attack strategy?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I know a lot of people throw around the word recon. And they say that recon. And is you're very the
0: master important. of recon. In your <laughs> world, like you're known as the master of recon, the guy who has really pushed the envelope around changing the way we think about assets, and think about how we look for it, and think about word lists, and all these like very obscure things. So, talk me through that process from the very beginning, and why you're the master of recon.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, when I look at recon, I look at it in two dimensions, mainly breadth and depth. So these are two different ways of looking at recon and, you know, breadth might be discovering hey, every domain. A Can
0: you define, just define recon for parts of the audience that is not familiar with this web app pen testing world? Because I have an audience out there that's defined reconnaissance here in this context.
1: Yeah, sure. So reconnaissance is the process of discovering information in order to potentially find vulnerabilities in your target. Um, so it is what usually leads to finding vulnerabilities.
0: It's, it's, it's the most crucial opening game, right? You have to actually look for targets and look for entry points and look for specific things. And that's why this part of it becomes crucial. Um, so yeah. So talk me through the mindset of like determining how you'll approach attacking something and is it different from target to target?
1: Yeah, it does depend on target to target mainly depends on, you know, the organization and how they've set up their infrastructure and what it looks like. But, Yeah, as I was saying earlier, reconnaissance, for me, I look at it in two dimensions, mostly breadth and depth. And when it comes to breadth, you're looking at things like, okay, let me find all the domains this organization owns. When you're looking at things like depth, you're looking at, okay, let me read through all the JavaScript on every application and go really deep into these applications. So for me, recon means a lot more than just finding subdomains. Recon doesn't stop at just finding assets like recon is a bit more to me. um, And honestly, um, recon goes hand in hand with instinct because the more often you do reconnaissance, the stronger your instinct becomes when it comes to finding gaps and security vulnerabilities in areas because you know that you've seen something like this before. You've seen this sort of infrastructure you've seen this pattern before. And at the end of the day, I feel like hacking can really just be boiled down to pattern identification. Um, really identifying all of these different patterns across an attack surface and then deep diving into them to find these vulnerabilities.
0: And that's that. Uh, and that's exactly how you have to think about it with defense when you talk about your continuous testing uh, uh, platform or your continuous testing approach. It's, again, it's this looking for patterns. I imagine there's some place in here for some artificial intelligence and some little bit of magic to do to do screenshots based on a color because a certain color pattern might represent a certain usage of a certain library. I don't know. Um, Yeah. So there's a lot of that that happens right in your reconnaissance world.
1: Yeah, there is. And um, there's, you know, there's something else which I call indicators and these indicators you know something that indicates that the due diligence hasn't been done on this on any asset that we discover. So, for example, an indicator could be like a PHP info file left behind. Now, um, you know, just the presence
0: trying, of that signals to you something.
1: Yeah, that signals to me that there's probably much deeper server side security issues on that asset, and it requires much more investigation. Um, something as simple as that, and these indicators. Um, There's so many of them. And if you become a master at identifying these indicators, you can spend less time looking at the noise and more time looking at, uh, I guess, finding that needle in the haystack, really.
0: And that goes back to your approach in the bug bounty world, because that's, and and, and we call it a game, but that's a serious, serious competitive game where it's a race. It's a race to the target. It's a race to have a finding and a discovery. And it's a race to report it and get it validated and authenticated and paid. And avoiding duplication, avoiding someone finding it before you. That's why we talk about automating all of this across the board. That becomes really, really crucial, right?
1: Yeah, it does. Um, And, you know, bug bounties have really, I guess, sparked automation and innovation, in my opinion. I've been doing web application security for almost 10 years now, and a lot of the innovation that we see um, is usually from the bug bounty space when it comes to web application security.
0: Yeah, I mean, from, from, the, from 2016, 17, when you first start dabbling in it to now, it's become much, 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 much harder, right?
1: Yeah, it's definitely become a lot harder. Um, I mean, it's you—you you just need to really be on top of your game, and there's so much to learn just to get started. Um, and then there's also cloud-specific attacks that you need to be on top of, and techniques that you need to be aware of in order to even be a part of the game that all these people are playing.
0: But the winning game, though, the winning game is when you can replicate an attack, an attack class across targets, right? Like that's the, thats where the goldmine is. It is identifying attack classes or or attack techniques uh, yeah. and logic type bugs that are in, that are very very difficult to fix, very very easy to bypass, and where there are a lot of implementation problems and issues. Right?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, something that was recently patched was uh, AWS's Route Fifty Three hosted zone takeovers. Now, when we talk about techniques that can be applied across any attack surface, large attack surfaces, almost any organization, any organization that was using AWS, they it's quite likely that they would have set up Route 53 records at some stage. But if they had forgotten to remove the name server records from the subdomains, but they had removed it from Route 53, an attacker could basically take over that subdomain, that whole hosted zone. Now, this was a widespread issue. And this was something that You know, I knew hackers making tens of thousands of dollars consistently by exploiting this issue on attack surfaces of almost any size, as long as they were using AWS. You know, this is something that only recently got patched by AWS. So AWS had enough and they had come up with some mitigation techniques such that attackers can no longer do this. But that should paint a picture of these widespread attacks that are bunch.
0: And you have to, we have to imagine there's. there are dozens of these just sitting around yeah. in people's back pockets, just you know, yeah. double and triple dipping everywhere, right?
1: Yeah, and um, it goes hand in hand with security research. The only way that we discover these sort of techniques is by spending a lot of time on security research and innovating in this field. Um, so, you know, at the moment, um, everyone is rushed into Elastic IP takeovers. That's when um, an Elastic IP... Uh you've got a subdomain pointing to it, but uh they no longer own that elastic IP. Someone else owns it or it's back in AWS's pool. Now that's something that the bug bounty market is really rushing into and we're seeing a lot more automation in that space now. But there's so many of these techniques, you know, there's there's so many widespread techniques that you can use across these bug bounty programs um that do lead to success.
0: Can you even play without automating any of your tools or, or or unless you're in 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 crews and you're working in teams, um, you really can't make a lot of money and compete with these guys, right?
1: No, no, I, I think you can. I, I, I you do think can? you can make a lot of money. Yeah, I still think you can. Um, I think that there's a lot of money left on the table if you're not automating stuff. However, um, I do know some really good bug bounty hunters that do very little to no automation, and still make a lot of money.
0: I am um, not a big fan of the bug bounty world, especially since the VCs came in, and the, you know the, the the entire market became it became driven by hype. But as you you quite rightly say, it's contributed significantly to the improvement of web app security across the board, and it's actually you know created a lot of business opportunities for a lot of folks who couldn't find jobs is create. So there's been a lot of benefit to the industry as a whole. Uh, and one of the themes I'm, I'm, I'm starting to notice is a lot of what you describe as burnout and a lot of just the hard work on the grind of really making a living there is starting to catch up with folks. And they're now coming back. And they're coming back to defense and getting back into security programs in Silicon Valley or wherever they are, or they're coming back and building companies like yours. And it just makes absolute sense that the kind of automation that you have to do around reconnaissance and just across the board for the work you do to really play in the bug world at scale and at a high level like you do, it just lends itself perfectly to just, it's the same exact product for for uh, defensive purposes. And can you talk a little bit about what were some of the big mindset changes that you got out of your playing in this bug bounty world and getting this experience that guided what asset note looks like now versus what you thought you were creating when you left Bishop Fox to create it.
1: I think there's a couple of things that really kind of made asset note what it is today and lessons I've taken from bug bounties, particularly one of the biggest ones is probably Signal. Um, so we we make a real big effort to not report on anything that is not vulnerable. So like we have a really I guess, strict guideline for signal. And that that comes from inspiration from the bug bounty market, because if you report something in bug bounties that's not valid, you're not going to get rewarded. Nothing's going to happen. That that report is going to get marked as NA, and that's the end of it. Um, These customers don't care about um, informational findings as your traditional legacy web application security scanners might bring up whether it be SSL cipher issues or other really low-level information informational issues, um, if these companies aren't paying for it in a bug bounty, they don't really care about these vulnerabilities. So, that's so you have to
0: demonstrate of, impact, right? Like you have yeah, to actually demonstrate impact.
1: That's right. That's right. And um, that's one thing that we've um, been really successful at at Note is we demonstrate impact for every vulnerability we find by providing a full HTTP request and response for the full exploit chain for any vulnerability.
0: So you're not flagging and reporting low hanging fruit. However, uh, however, however, as you've written and, and, and a lot of your peers have written, it's this very obscure low level, not low level, but very obscure uh, low hanging fruit that sometimes is the, the initial entry point or the pivot point that allows you some sort of persistence within uh, a yeah. certain breach, right?
1: We still do report low-hanging fruit, for sure, um, and as long as we can demonstrate the impact uh, for that low-hanging fruit. But um, yeah, I mean, low-hanging fruit, um, (laughs) we're seeing less and less of that these days in bug bounty programs.
0: Yeah, but you still have these obscure design things. I mean, there was one just recently you blogged about uh, H2C smuggling. Yeah, uh, This Jake Miller research around how you can get HTTP 2 over clear text by downgrading and doing some like magic so you can snoop things, uh, sneak things past. Right. Like that's just such like a, a didn't even make headlines in our in like mainstream headlines. It made headlines in your world. as one of the most novel attack techniques uh, in among pen testers and in that inside baseball world. And I, I didn't see a headline anywhere else. But that's such a significant thing. Do you find that a lot of, even in a lot of the very mature security programs, a lot of this stuff gets forgotten? And can you spend a little time just explaining what H2C smuggling, what his discovery was, and how you guys took it to another level?
1: I mean, I even think that a lot of people in the bug bounty world slept on this excellent research. When when I first saw this research, I was uh, taken aback by it, and I really thought um, this is going to be a widespread issue that we're going to be seeing. Uh, on attack surfaces for a long period of time, this is something that can be automated and can prove impact fairly, you know, significantly for all these programs, bug bounty programs, and even all our customers at Asset mode.
0: So it was. So it was a in huge... the Audience on what it was.
1: Yeah, sure. So H2C smuggling is when you can uh, smuggle HTTP requests through the H2C protocol in HTTP2. Um, so if there are routes that are being protected by a reverse proxy. Uh, it might be possible to access those routes uh, through H2C smuggling, even if there are protections to protect these routes from being accessed. And, you know, when we when we saw that research, we... Uh, By the way,
0: shout out to Jake Miller, who yeah. uh, w- 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 did, uh, wrote that report and, you know, was widely credited and, and celebrated for that work.
1: Yeah, and he also released an excellent tool called H2C smuggler. And uh, that tool is really effective. And we, we, we looked at that research and we were like, okay, this is amazing. We, we want to prove the concept on cloud providers. So we, we looked at you know Azure, GCP, AWS, and we went through all of them. And we, we ultimately found that this was a fundamental issue that cloud providers hadn't protected against either. So his research, um, it's like standing on the shoulders of giants, honestly. Jake Miller had done such an excellent job at documenting what the problem was, how to reproduce it, provided tooling to, to reproduce it. And um, that was really a significant moment for us at AssetNote to take that research and try and take it to the next level.
0: Yeah, you. I mean, even the big uh, cloud supply, uh, you were able to demonstrate impact on AWS, some, and even some of the bigger cloud providers, right?
1: Yeah, the best one was Azure. So Azure had a WAF which um, could be bypassed using H2C smuggling. That WAF was basically rendered useless uh, as soon as the H2C smuggling technique was applied uh, on assets using that WAF.
0: You mentioned this is standing on its shoulders of giants. What's been, well, two things. What's been your favorite? um, What's been your own personal favorite discovery of yours? And what's been, can, can you talk about one? of a peer of yours that stands out as like the most groundbreaking bit of research you've seen? Yeah. I mean,
1: for me, uh, one of the, one of the best discoveries that I'd ever found, um, was actually a duplicate, um, in bug bounty, in the bug bounty world, but there was a large gaming company and this gaming company, um, had a client that would run on any operating system. And I had walked away from web application security for a little while to see, if I could find vulnerabilities in these uh, clients. And basically, I found a remote command execution vulnerability, which would trigger as soon as you visit a web page and had that client open. Now, we're talking about probably the biggest game in the world. And unfortunately, I can't say what company that is, but right. um, we're talking about hundreds and millions of users. Um, I submitted this uh, to their program, and I, I, I got a dupe with a really good friend of mine who had found it a week before I had. But it still sticks out to me as one of the most significant vulnerabilities I've found because of the impact it had on on so many people.
0: Um, How often are these kinds of dupes popping up?
1: Honestly, not that much. Um, it, it, it depends. It depends if you're like reporting really uh, low severity issues or whether or not right, you're reporting. Right. You're more
0: yeah. likely to see it there.
1: Yeah, more likely to see it if you're reporting low severity issues. That's for sure.
0: And uh, impressive research you've seen from someone else
1: has to be around timing attacks. So I'm a huge fan of timing attacks. I think that there's a lot of uh, additional work that can be done in that area.
0: Um, explaining timing attacks? Can you spend a second explaining timing attacks and why it's interesting and why there's this?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think in particular, I'm talking about time of check, time of use attacks, toctal attacks. Now that means that um, basically race conditions. Um, you can You can convince the application to do something that it probably shouldn't because you've just raced to that particular function in time. So at the time of check, it might be valid in the time of use. And on the time of check, it might be invalid. the time of use, it might be valid. So um, these TogTel attacks, they're, they're difficult to detect. Um, but once detected and exploited, they have really serious implications most of the time. The most significant one I saw was there was an, a server-side request for vulnerability vulnerability it would save it as a PDF, and then it would, if it detected that it was a server-side request forgery vulnerability, it would delete that PDF. But what you could do is you could uh, spam the download link for that PDF. So before it deleted it, you would be able to download the full contents of that PDF and see the server-side request forgery vulnerability. Um, so that that's a, a classic example of a time of check, time of use attack, which does have a lot of impact.
0: What what when you see common mistakes pop up? often the, say, the same types of common mistakes popping up often is it a result of poor coding is it the result of something else is it the result of the unavailability of proper tools what what is cause or is it just implementation errors people just not configuring things properly what is the you know biggest problem we face around defending web apps
1: yeah yeah i think i'll, I'll refer to Um, Uber's bug bounty program for this one. And um, so I'm really successful in that program. I'm probably third or something like that. And uh, I've basically been exploiting a single vulnerability class on all of Uber's attack surface. And that's insecure. Hold on. For maybe three, <laughs> four years, at least.
0: Um, when you say and- the same, like, this is fascinating to me. When you say you've been exploiting the same attack class and, and you've been just getting paid in the same attack class, it means that someone is making the same mistake? Yeah. Or is it just something that's just impossible to fix? Uh,
1: no, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's a systemic issue that, um, so for example, Uber, they use what you call a UUID for all of the user's IDs which is like a unique string. And um, basically, that unique string can't be easily guessed. But if you have another person's user ID, UUID, uh, then you can use that in requests on behalf of that user. And 90% of the time, it works. It, it, it assumes you're that other user. Now, I've been reporting this class of vulnerabilities to Uber for you know four or five years. And um, every new application they build, I usually jump on it as soon as possible and try and find this class of vulnerabilities. And, and um, it goes
0: back to our earlier conversation about blood in the water, right? This institutional memory that you know there's blood in the water there, and this is not not necessarily easy pickings, but it's like its its speed to exploitation is shortened, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know exactly what I'm looking for. I know I'm looking for API calls that do something with the user's identity, um, and I'm looking for uh, calls which have UUIDs. So I, you know, it 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 shortens my scope. Uh, quite a bit. It it makes me focus on what I think is going to be vulnerable and saves me a lot of time. Um, for me, I can do Uber whenever I want to and look for this particular class of vulnerabilities.
0: Still? Still today, right? Yeah, still
1: today. Yeah.
0: Are, are you still playing bug Are you still submitting and still doing findings and submitting? Yeah,
1: yeah, I am. Um, whatever free time I get. But these days, I've been doing a lot more of uh, reverse engineering and source code analysis. So finding vulnerabilities and Things like Office Web App Server or WebSphere, or you know, pick any vendor product, um, and then I add the vulnerabilities back into Asset Node's as signatures. But I also, you know, at the end of the day, am I'm, I'm also reporting them to bug bounties as well.
0: When you're when you're identifying these attack class things that you can, you know, spread out across targets, how much help me through the the, the mental gymnastics at play around exploiting it and trying to determine how the hell do we get this freaking thing fixed as a, not, not necessarily as an industry because you have an economic incentive to not necessarily keep it open, but at the same time, you're a defender, right? You're in your, your, your client is, is paying you because this needs to be addressed and fixed. Can you talk about the mental gymnastics of?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, getting is
0: that, is that, is that even a thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, like in the in the bug bounty community, most people um, they're, they're not really concerned about things getting fixed. Um, <laughs> to be completely honest, I think that they're they're more interested in whether or not they can continuously exploit something for a long period of time and make a lot of money out of it. Um, to be and that honest.
0: happens, and that happens because not a lot of things are being syst- properly and systematically fixed. There's been a, there's been a lot of just band-aiding over things, right? Just yeah, putting band aids and-, and plasters.
1: And we'd hope, we'd hope that the company would learn the lesson after paying out so much money um, that they need to systematically fix something. But in many cases, that, that's not what happens. Um, and sometimes one could even argue that it might be cheaper to pay out all these bug bounty hunters And systematically fix the issues um, that are so large in an organization of such size.
0: So you're still running into a lot of these implementation things. You're still running into a lot of the same common mistakes. What are some new things popping up that that represents addition to attack surface that we're not thinking about or that we're potentially overlooking? We're just kind of adding things because like I was just looking at the point-to-one contest results, right? And there's a freaking zero-click vulnerability in Zoom that requires yeah. zero user interaction. Someone just has to send you a message, right? Like yeah. that's the scariest thing on earth. Now you have to imagine there's hundreds of those things all over the Zoom attack, uh, uh, Zoom code and attack surface everywhere.
1: Um, we, we At AssetNote, we found the Zoom zero day a couple of years ago as well. It was covered by the NY, NY Times. And I can tell you that looking at the attack surface that Zoom has, um, it's it's so huge. And they've, they've uh, delved into so many different things. And you'll see at the Porn to Own competition, it was a vulnerability inside Zoom chat, which is probably a feature most people don't even know about that Zoom has. But it, it kind of is like a Slack clone, but in, in Zoom's own style. And um, there's so much attack surface there. Um, I remember playing around with Zoom chat and seeing that it had some pretty interesting behaviors when I threw some files at it um, that were of specific. That has specific names of malicious names i guess and um i i almost thought you know there's got to be something wrong here and then the point to own competition happens and someone finds a zero day uh in exactly that component
0: and not only that component but like they support sip they support like a lot of these voip protocols that you just yeah. you just go you just go look for some old cisco bugs and i get yeah. I don't want to guarantee anything, but you know what I mean? Blood in the water in terms of that attack surface is just so, it's, 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 it's really scary, but Zoom and WhatsApp and all these like non-supported apps and attack surface still is scattered through every organization. Right. Um, So again, like what's the priority for a defender? Is it defending those things? Is it the web app and the attack surface there? Is it everything? Is it even defendable?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm really biased towards the web app side, and I do appreciate um, how important it is to protect against client side vulnerabilities. But I also appreciate how badly a company can be, I guess, owned by web app vulnerabilities. And it's for us when it comes to attack surface, what we're seeing is a lot more attack surface on, in the third party platform space. So, for example, developers using GitHub or Bitbucket or GitLab and pushing secrets there. So the attack surface extends out to a lot more than just your web accessible assets. It can be anything that your employees are putting up on GitHub as well. Um, so we are seeing that and yeah.
0: Has COVID work from home, digital transformation, everyone driving things to the cloud made it much easier for you guys to, 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 to find, uh, made attack surface wider and make, make your findings easier?
1: Yeah, I think to some extent, um, there there has been a lot more activity when it comes to finding secrets on GitHub. Um, That is something that we're seeing, like, you know, contractors or employees um, putting stuff up on GitHub that they probably shouldn't be belonging to a company, um, usually secrets that lead to some level of privileged access. Um, So there has been a little bit more of that. I think as people start working from home, they become a bit more, I guess, uh, flexible with what they do. And um, a bit more relaxed about uh, some of these security uh, concerns that may not have, may not happen if they were working at the company in the office. They might just be a bit more relaxed, I think.
0: How butter thinks? I mean, every day every, every every day, I fire up Google and I look at my feed reader and there's a new ransomware infection. There's a new big massive breach. There's an APT attack here. There's a supply chain attack here. They're everywhere. And during this conversation, you said to me, web app attack, web app security is becoming, it's better, much better. It's becoming stronger. It, it seems like we're having two conversations where uh, uh, bug bounties and all this Big driver on web app testing has really, really improved things, but things still suck. Like it's like every organization is royally owned or can be royally owned pretty easily. Like, what is really going on?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, the the thing is, um, is there a target?
0: Is there a target that you feel can be put in front of you and you can't get into? Be honest. Like, um, and Not not out of arrogance, but like, as a reality check about how attack surface is and how really uh, easy it is to auto- automate a lot of these things.
1: I do think there are a lot of hard targets. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't be able to get into them. I would just say that it would take me a long, long amount of time. Um, it's really the time taken um, to break into something. Like if someone put, uh, you've been seeing all these insane bugs in Microsoft Exchange. Over the last couple of uh, weeks and days. months, um, days, yeah. And these bugs, um, they are pretty phenomenal. Um, they're, they're exploit chains that have required a lot of reverse engineering, a lot of source code analysis. And um, you know, if you put Microsoft Exchange in front of me, uh, I'm sure I could find uh, security vulnerabilities, but it, it probably would take me a lot longer than the people who have been working on it at porn to Own. Have been able to find these in. So I'm in. I am in no ways a master um, when it comes to breaking into certain things. But I, I do think that there is still vulnerabilities in almost any vendor product out there.
0: Right, but it it, it might it might not be uh, you personally may not be the master, but a well resourced team or a well resourced yeah. adversary will will eventually break into everything given enough time.
1: If that's how you're modeling it, then I would say we're pretty screwed.
0: Let's talk a little bit about building a company. Uh, what's harder, ha- hacking, or actually setting up HR structure and payroll and all the drama and BS that goes into running a company?
1: Yeah, it's been it's been pretty pretty rewarding and pretty humbling, to be honest. Um, You know, I, I'd never managed people before, and now we have a, a pretty uh, large team here at Asset Node that. Uh, I have to manage day to day, and the technology of everything we do, I have to manage as well. It's interesting because I find myself applying all of the same hacker mindset that I've kind of uh, obtained over the last couple of years when it comes to engineering problems, when it comes to management, when it comes to everything in the company and how we think about problems and moving forward. So, in many ways, this hacker mindset that you develop by just being a good hacker and trying your best, um, you can apply. Uh, to other concepts in life, like running your own company. And that's, that's basically all I've been doing for the last couple of years. And um, so far, so good. You know, we're still, we're still running. We haven't, on or anything so no um,
0: VC funding either I mean you made a deliberate decision I I have to imagine you've had VCs knocking on your door if you say asset management a little too loudly a VC will throw money at you it doesn't matter who you are you've built a successful product you have a pedigree in this industry I have to imagine there have been some knocks on your door but you've decided to bootstrap it can you talk a little bit about why you've decided to do that and what are what are the pros and cons of this
1: yeah sure um yeah bootstrapping it was a really really a philosophical decision that both my co-founder and i made when we started the company we wanted full control of the direction of the company we didn't want to have uh certain people telling us that we needed to hire a certain headcount by a certain date we didn't want uh the why why don't
0: you want that isn't that success
1: No, what we consider success is probably not the same thing as uh, hiring a certain headcount by a certain date, because we want to hire the best of the best. And uh, when you have to hit quotas for hiring, uh, you have to compromise a little bit on that. And that's not something that we were willing to do. That was something that we, we wanted to grow naturally. And we thought that if we hired the best people, we could grow and support a large number of customers even if we didn't have a team of 40, 50, 100. And that's so far proven very true. Um, I think each person that works at AssetNode could be equivalent of many more people working here, but they they do the job of many people. And um, they're they're all, I guess, outsized for for, for being a single person working at our, our company. They're doing so much, but they're handling it and they're loving it. They, they enjoy working here. They think that it's challenging. They get to do security research. And that's another thing, right? Like um, we have a heavy focus on security research. And that's something that we think we've been able to bring to the company because we have complete control over the direction of what this company takes and what it does.
0: And that's a big talent talent uh, retention. In addition to attracting people into your organization, this res- heavy research focus. I want to linger here for a second too, because as much as your business is driven by the ability to automate a lot of the tasks away, you're still a people business, right? Like the, when the, when the tools spit things back at you, you still need humans human eyeballs. And people with the institutional memory that you mentioned and all this blood in the water stuff. So you're still a people business and attracting talent and retaining talent becomes very, very crucial at a time when there's a massive talent shortage and all of Silicon Valley is throwing RSUs and all kinds of stock options at folks. How do you make sure you're keeping your 20 people? Well, first of all, how do you make sure you're getting the right eyeballs in? Because I know it's not a problem unique to you. It's a problem across uh, security programs but how are you thinking about it differently around talent attraction and in addition to you know making going to conferences and speaking and making all this fun stuff there what are some of the what are some of the retention things that you encourage like some of your peers to think about
1: when it comes to retention um i mean we really care As about- you have to
0: imagine guys are poaching right
1: yeah, guys are definitely poaching, <laughs> um, and the reason why most of our employees have stayed at AssetNote instead of going for these companies that have been trying to poach them is because they're, they're working, they're getting to work on a cutting-edge technology that uh, that is just not something that most uh, companies get to offer, and also get to work on the research element. But one thing I want to kind of draw it back to is uh, a little bit about the landscape in Australia. We lose a lot of amazing talent to San Francisco, America. But we also have a lot of people in Australia, amazing talent in Australia, that wants to stay in Australia and they don't want to move to the United States. However, for the longest of times, there hasn't been a security product company that they could work for. It would usually be a security consultancy, a boutique, or something like that. And as a motor,
0: of there's just a handful of them. I can name yeah. them on one hand, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, ever since I was a teenager, um, one of my dreams was to be able to build a company that would let you work on cutting edge security research without having to do consulting, without having to be, you know, someone who's always spread for time. And um, that was one of my dreams before starting Asset Mode and being able to start this company and being able to facilitate that for the employees that we have has been a really humbling experience in my in my opinion. And um, I think the, the employees that we have at AssetNode feel the same way because they've been able to work on tools that they released open source to the community. They've been able to work on research that gets built into the product. And at the end of the day, all of the research that they're doing has a really big impact on all of our customers and all of the results that we put out with our platform. So that's that's been really rewarding for everyone working on this so far.
0: I sense a real uh, pride in building an Australian company as well, and kind of breaking through and being that company that that being that guy who can actually, you know, create uh, opportunity and jobs and and be a mentor for a lot of folks there. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's fair. And I I wish there was a company like this when I was a teenager, I wish that I could have joined a company like this um, when I was younger, but I had to go through security consultancies and and that wasn't a bad thing. I learned a lot of things working at security consultancies, but um, there was the work-life balance was something that was very difficult to maintain um, when I was at any, any security consultancy.
0: Just going back to the people thing about attracting and retaining talent, do you encourage for do you encourage kids to do the OSCP and do the certification, go the certification route, or do you tell them to forget about the certification, just go get your hands dirty, or uh, like how, how would you how would you advise kids?
1: I'm a big fan of the OSCP. I think it does build a lot of fundamentals. Um, it's hard so to. Go, yeah, it is. It is hard. Um, but I, I failed the first time I did the OSCP. So if that makes anyone feel any better. And the second attempt uh, was when I passed. And You encourage uh, it? You yeah, encourage I encourage you it. it. I encourage it because it, it builds a lot of fundamentals and it rounds out your skills. You might be really good at one specific area, but uh, when you do the OSCP, you have to be good at multiple areas when it comes to offensive security.
0: And it's practical and it's something that, that, that skills transfer.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's very practical. And the skills do remain like... Even, uh, it's probably been six, seven years since I've done my OSCP, but I still remember a lot of the lessons that I learned, um, while doing the certification.
0: Do you require it for hiring?
1: No, we, we currently don't require it. Um, but you know, it's a huge plus.
0: Do you require a university degree?
1: No, we, we don't require a university degree. In fact, a lot of our employees have no university degree.
0: Do you think that those requirements for certifications and university degree is a, is a deterrent? to real talent that may not have gone to school. You just said it, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a deterrent. Um, I don't believe in hiring people only if they have a university degree and a certification. I I wholeheartedly am against that. I think that some of the best talent don't have certifications and university degrees. Um, So I think you're missing out on some pretty amazing talent if you discard them immediately
0: like that. At the same time, there's nothing wrong with certifications and university degrees and the kids should stay in school. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we talked about the decision to bootstrap and stay happy, and not have these really str- these goals that that affect your ability to hire and have strong people in place. On the flip side of that, we ha- I just saw an amazing thread by Andrew Wilkinson talking about as how Asana came along, and his inability to kind of you know at, at a strategic business level. I think he ended up claiming he lost ten million dollars by doing something stupid, just not- sitting around watching a competitor get super funded, go on a rocket train, and things fall apart. Is there a worry there?
1: Yeah, I've seen that. And I've thought about it a lot. But on the flip side, there are also articles like Harun Mia bootstrapping his company for to 11 million ARR. And there are articles that I've read recently uh, on Forbes about uh, a company called Cloudinary, uh, which bootstrapped themselves to almost a billion dollars. And, um, you know, we we can look at these markets and we can see, you know, Asana um, and uh, Flow, which was the company that Andrew Wilkinson was working on. Um, You know, I've heard uh, a lot of things about them and, you know, I I don't think that there was the level of innovation in that space when it comes to project management and uh, that sort of stuff. I don't think there was something particularly innovative about Flow that made it better than Asana. Um, but Asana did have a lot more money to do marketing and to really beat them in that industry, and that's why I think Asana ultimately won. Um, however, like when we look at the the space of attack surface management, um, a lot of what we're seeing and a lot of the reason that we will win deals is because of our innovation that we've built into our product, uh, that research that we we've been talking about in this podcast that has converted into real security vulnerabilities of high impact, high signal. And um, to replicate that, um, that's like replicating all of the research we've done. So I I do think there's a unique element when it comes to uh, looking at our company and our space in the tax surface management, comparing it to, so let's say, Andrew Wilkinson's story uh, with Flo and Asana.
0: Does being in Australia and so far away from Silicon Valley hurt you? It's now 5 p.m. here on the West Coast. I think it's 10 a.m. for you. Our day is winding down. Is there any advantage to being in across the world, uh, or and and how do you cope with the obvious disadvantage of not being?
1: We've actually hired um, uh, two people in the U.S. now, and we're getting more and more coverage of the world day by day. Honestly, so we we um, we do react really quickly to any of our support tickets, no matter what time it is. That's probably one thing that is really important and. Uh, has no bounds in, in, as to what time zone you're in. These support tickets will come in any time of the day. So that's been a little bit of a disadvantage being in Australia and getting support tickets from the US. But for the most part, I would say that we're getting better at that because we're hiring people in the West Coast. We're hiring people in the US that are being able to take on some of these responsibilities. We we truly believe we're a global company. We want to be a global company and um, we'll, we'll hire talent anywhere they are in the world, as long as they're the right fit. So for us, you know, like being in Australia, it's been insane because a lot of people have come to us and said, you know, how do you have all these customers all around the world? Like, uh, you're just some small company in Australia, but, you know, it's it's not the case. We we haven't actually had any issues in procurement. We haven't had any issues in interfacing with all of these large companies around the world. Um, And it's been really amazing to be, I guess, a global company from day one.
0: And you guys are profitable, right?
1: Yeah, we're profitable. Which is not,
0: um, not something that a lot of startups can say at any level.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, even if we we continue on the road we are now um, and look at our projections, we're, we're going to be doing really well over the next couple of years. And we're profitable. We don't have to worry about, you know, um, any burn rates or anything like that. Um, we don't necessarily need any VC money. So we're not really concerned about that at this stage. Um, and we're we're investing back into our people, back into research, back into security, uh, the security community.
0: The success of your business or or your category as a whole depends on continuous innovation around putting more of the work into tools. Because for the security program, I mean, I, I've been looking at a lot of uh, the work from Colin Green, product security at Facebook who writes incredibly concise pieces on this whole shift left and moving bugs all the way left where they're probably discovered by your tools. I mean, that's the big priority for them is to make sure that bugs are, doesn't pass this, this threshold where it becomes dangerous, right? Do you do you envision that we get to a time where it balances to a place where we can just throw tools at things and get that to handle everything or we're always going to be dependent on people
1: uh i think there's still going to be a dependence on people i mean there's only so much you can't automate we have to be a little bit sensible when we think about automation um you know we, we don't use anything like artificial intelligence at asset Nerd. We we don't think that that is the right way of looking at it. But we do use a lot of pragmatic thinking and a lot of, uh, I guess, having the hacker mindset when it comes to automation. There is a certain boundary when it comes to automation. And that is something that we uh, were very well aware of um, as, as far as the limitations go for when, where automation can get us to. Um, we don't believe that AI is necessarily the solution. It may be the solution in some certain cases, but for the, for the wide picture, the larger picture, we don't think AI is going to come in and solve all the problems we have with automation.
0: We still think But there's a role for AI, even in your world, even in your asset, like even in some of the content discovery things that we were talking about earlier and some of the, what do you call it? Filtering things by, you know, even color coding and filtering things. There's a role for some of AI and some machine learning there. though.
1: There is. Um, there, there is a role for things like that, but um, it is quite expensive, and it might not actually lead to the results that you're looking for at the end of the day. Um, I have looked at tooling that does use artificial intelligence to classify screenshots, and in my opinion, it's just not quite there yet, um, even though there's been a lot of time invested in, in making that work. And in my opinion, um, it's teaching instinct to artificial intelligence is a really difficult thing to do.
0: Yeah. And instinct is, is like you mentioned, instinct is a big, key, crucial part to get to the real fun findings, right? A lot yeah. of it is instinct. Yeah. We're running out of time, so I'll let you out of here with last question. What, in addition to asset discovery, asset management, your category, innovation there, what are some things you're seeing that's happening that's giving you a sense of optimism around innovation?
1: Um, I, I, you know there's been innovation on the the endpoint security side of things for the last 10 years that that's making me a bit more it's comforting me a little bit yeah beyond that it's hard to hard to pinpoint down an exact technology or something that has really changed the game um but i would i would probably say for me um we're seeing framework-wide mitigations so we're seeing frameworks like ruby on rails we're seeing frameworks like Django we're seeing frameworks like that becoming much more mature today to the point that uh, vulnerabilities are becoming more difficult to discover. Even WordPress core, not WordPress plugins, but the core WordPress, has become a lot more secure. Uh, to the point where you're not going to be able to find a vulnerability in WordPress core um, these days. So that's that's
0: making me did feel a little bit. Did you see Zerodium bad. pricing for WordPress vulnerability
1: from yeah, this week? Yeah, I did. Yeah, did that surprise uh, you?
0: Is that PR? Uh, is that marketing? Is that Choki doing marketing <laughs> PR or is that real?
1: No, I, I think that's real because um, finding a vulnerability in WordPress core is not trivial. Um, and and, that's, I,
0: and why, why is that? They have made significant investments in certain specific things?
1: Yeah. If you take a look at the vulnerabilities found in the core WordPress code base over the last five years, there's actually very few that actually had a critical impact. You know, they're, the, the core code base, in my opinion, has actually done a pretty good job at uh, fixing security issues over the last five years.
0: Interesting. Thank you so much, Shubs. Come back on the podcast again when you have uh, some big news or some new announcement of research. I'd love to continue the conversation. I think we can do this for another hour easily.
1: Great talking to you today.
0: Thank you very much, man.